0: The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that may result from listening to this podcast. This is the Scream Kings podcast. I'm Max George. And I'm Nathaniel Darkish. This one podcast changes everything for me. That could mean so many things.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it really does.
0: It's a very cryptic opener. If
1: you can't pull a horror movie from that very vague (laughs) quote, then we should probably mention that we are talking the house of the devil. The
0: night's big eclipse is now well underway. I feel a little weird just dropping you out here in the middle of wherever we are. This is such a good movie, people. If you haven't seen this movie, go watch it. It's streamable on about everything out there. It's so good.
1: Yes, it is. So um, I guess a few details about the movie. It is, like I said, The House of the Devil. It came out in 2009, directed by Ty West, written by Ty West. And it's it's just a solid movie.
0: It really is. And a quick kind of plot rundown. It's about this college-age student who's moving into a new apartment. She's got to find some money somewhere. She finds this advertisement on campus for babysitter. She goes and checks out the babysitting venue. It's this really creepy old man. There's a lot of details I just skipped over, but it's fine. (laughs)
1: Yeah, that's really cutting right to the meat.
0: And one thing turns to another. She realizes that it's not children she's supposed to be watching over. It's this decrepit old lady and it just snowballs from there. <laughs>
1: yes. And we'll of course cover a few more plot details as we're going over what we like about this movie. So Hit do you off. wanna Oh okay, yeah, I'll I'll start us off. So <laughs>
0: I have a lot to say. But go for it.
1: <laughs> so do I. Uh so I guess for starters, one of the things I really love about this movie is that um it is definitely a Strong tribute to a lot of '80s horror movies, and because of that, it you you can tell that Ty West has really done a lot to structure the plot and structure the filmography and structure really everything about the movie around that idea. So you know, kind of like what we mentioned with with some stuff with like The Conjuring, how a lot of the techniques mirrored that of the time period. Uh, I would say this is taking that idea and taking and, and running even further with it so for example in the 80s using a zoom on a camera was really co- a common technique especially for you know getting like really close up shots uh you know like reaction shots that they would zoom up on somebody Well, a more modern technique would involve you know moving forward with a dolly with the camera but so this movie you know went with the 80s method with the zoom uh, and it does that with, with everything. Like the, it, it looks and feels authentically like an 80s movie, just to every little detail.
0: And honestly, the first time I watched the movie, I thought it was an 80s show. I didn't look up the year it was filmed or anything. And so, I mean, I think that's a huge testament to Ty West. I'm a huge 80s culture slash movies fan, and I had absolutely no idea this was a modern film like it's incredible how well produced and well shot it is to make you feel like you're watching a classic eighties horror movie.
1: And I also like that for the, for the most part, a lot of the actors and the, the people that he got involved in the project are also just people that aren't necessarily super huge names. I mean, I guess Greta Ger- or Greta Gerwig is pretty big now, but she was more of an unknown uh, at that time as well. And, yeah, so, like, you watch the movie and it's not like, oh, hey, here's this modern star and here's this modern star. They're just right. anonymous enough that you're like, oh, is this just this, yeah, kind of anonymous gem that that kind of went under my radar for the last 30 years?
0: <laughs> well, and it's so flawless and seamless on how it is put together. Uh, I mean, the fashion's on point. The music is indicative of an 80s horror movie. The scenes, like you were mentioning, even how they filmed it, the cinematography is very, very true to styles that you saw, um, you know, in in great classic horror movies that have created a legacy. Like, it almost felt like this was a tribute to those awesome horror movies.
1: Oh, for sure.
0: And it did it so well. You know, there are some movies out there that try and replicate this, and it just doesn't pull it off so seamlessly like this does.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like... The- this kind of styling, you know, replicating the filmography and, and you know, everything that, that that is of, you know, kind of the more classic era, uh, you know, be it the 70s or 80s, is definitely uh, kind of a popular thing more recently. But I would say, yeah, The House of the Devil probably does it more successfully than almost anything else I've seen. You know, it does it better than Stranger Things. It does it better than The Conjuring. It does it better than... Yeah, almost any other movie I've ever seen.
0: And Stranger Things does a really good job, but there is something very distinct and different about The House of the Devil that I really think is that extra level of kind of nostalgia, for lack of a better term. And I I don't really know what that is. Uh, You know, you just feel like you're watching one of those horror movies that you grew up watching, and it was made nine years ago. Like, I can't say enough good things about this movie.
1: Alright, so what what's another element of the movie that that
0: spoke to you? For me, I love a well-balanced horror movie that keeps you engaged, definitely leads you on, but you're not a hundred percent sure what is going on. If it is just a creepy old man with a weird grandma, um, if there was something more nefarious going on, is this gonna turn into a ghost movie? The title is called House of the Devil, so is there demon stuff going on? And you really have no idea the full content of the plot until like the last 15 minutes. And sometimes I really don't like that, but this movie ties it up all very, very, very well. You've come to find out that there's this lunar eclipse that's happening, and so this family who advertised the babysitter is actually looking for a victim to use in a human sacrifice and the family is all engaged in these very very dark black magic satanic ritual stuff and it like snowballs out of control but in the good powerful way would you agree
1: yes for sure i feel like it's it's such an effective movie because it's it's just so well constructed in terms of the plot you know so we have this character who is there because she is desperate for money but she's smart she is willing to get out of there if there's anything too fishy
0: and it's um, so good I just want to interrupt you there because she she is smart and that's really brilliant to see especially in an 80s horror movie you know she brings her best friend along to scope out the place and make sure it's not creepy like it's it's real life situations that would happen sorry
1: (laughs) yeah yeah well and and you know i love that when mr Ullman, the man who hired her admits to her actually you're not watching a child you're really just here to you know make sure that if if something bad happens to my mother-in-law like that there's someone to you know call the police basically or you know call call an ambulance that's basically all that we need you here for and and the fact that that she's like, hey, like you lied to me, you deceived me, like I think I'm just going to walk. And it's you know only when he very desperately and, and and he and he plays it very naturally, you know, it's like no, like we really just need this night out. Like we we really just need to get out of the house. I'm willing to pay whatever it takes to get you to stay here. But but yeah, he doesn't play it in a creepy way. But you know, even even though there's so many red flags, it. It does a good job of kind of lulling you into believing stuff as well. You're like, well, maybe it is just like a, a nice guy because because at that point in the movie, you don't know that he's a bad guy. You like for all you know, yeah. Sh- while she's you know babysitting, the house will get attacked by someone unrelated to him. Like you don't know what the context is yet, and so you don't know what you should be afraid of. And so I love that because you see her being smart and and you're like, yeah, you know what? I would probably accept the job too under those circumstances.
0: And she's not the only one who's very smart here. You know, Mr. Ullman and his whole family, this is very well choreographed. And, you know, of course it's the acting of the movie, but the character was very real. Like explaining that he just felt so embarrassed that it's not, babysitting a child it's babysitting this old grandmother and i feel so bad so i'm gonna like pay you enough for lying and pay you enough for this kind of odd awkward situation like a lot of times horror movies have stupid protagonists but they also have stupid antagonists and this one was just so well balanced it was so refreshing to see they were smart killers and smart survivors kind of yeah
1: and 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 the story was constructed in a way that you, as the audience, didn't know exactly what was going on. And when you knew more than the main character, you still didn't have a complete picture. And it kept you guessing, and it really raised the tension in a very real way.
0: And by then, it was too late, mm-hmm. you know? One of my favorite parts is when the friend actually decides to leave. and She pulls over for a smoke break, I believe. And all of a sudden, the son of Mr. Omen, who, again, we don't know who it is at this point pops out of nowhere and wants to give this friend a light of her cigarette. And she's creeped out, of course. She does it anyway, and then he just kills her.
1: Yeah, like, just just blows her away immediately. I,
0: I thought that was brilliant, because if you put yourself into a murderous kind of... Uh, <laughs> this sounds terrible of me to say, but if you were a murderer, or if I was a murderer, I wouldn't have this long dialogue. You would go for it. And I don't know, it was just really, really powerful. It came out of nowhere. It came very sudden. You're like, oh, what's going on?
1: Yeah. Oh, and I love that scene because it immediately made everything else in the movie terrifying.
0: Yeah, it took it to the next level in an instant.
1: Yeah, because at at that point you're uncomfortable, but you don't know what the problem is. You don't know like you know it's a horror movie called The House of the Devil. There's a little title card at the beginnings, like talking about like cults doing bad stuff, but it was kind of vague too. And then suddenly this is the first real action, it's suddenly this woman just gets shot in the face and you're like, Oh, oh no. Like her only lifeline. And and and, and like she was really smart. She was like, Okay, like come back to me at the or back for me at a certain time, if, yeah, if you haven't heard from me by this time, like, come get me, like, she, they already have, like, a very safe, very smart battle plan in place, and suddenly everything goes out the window, and so suddenly everything that she's doing around the house, you know, she's just doing homework and wandering around and dancing around to her Walkman, everything just takes this sinister air because you know something bad is about to happen, but you don't know what.
0: I, I loved those scenes. It was just so perfect 80s moment. Yeah. Like, it was so good. I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, and, and then I
1: love that, you know, she she's ordering some pizza, and then the dude who shows up to deliver the pizza is the guy who shot her friend. But he just gives her the pizza and leaves, and you're like, what is going on? It's so good.
0: It's another thing that makes this movie really impactful, is there's this overall heavy mood throughout the entire movie it starts out with you know our our main actress really down samantha is her name Mm -hmm. really down she's looking for money she's trying to better her life it it feels heavy to start out with and it holds on to that the entire movie there's no real moment where you can take a breath um you know even this fun 80s dance kind of nostalgia scene is underlaid with the friend just died Like, ah, it's just so good. It's tense. It makes you hold your breath. It's really one of the more flawless movies I think I've seen in a long time.
1: Agreed. Like, I love the music choices. They were very authentic to the time and the age of the character. And they're just a lot of fun to listen to. And it just made for some fun scenes.
0: And it doesn't, like, beat you in the face with horror. You know, the horror is very, very real. It's very kind of creepy and unsettling. And then when it, we get to the big, big final reveal, that's when, you know, it hits the fan. Hmm.
1: Yeah, but like you said, it's it's not until the last couple minutes of the movie that things get really bad for Samantha.
0: Do you want to maybe just spoiler it? Spoiler it? Wow, that's a new term that we'll have to merchandise. Spoil it? <laughs> yeah, do you want to spoil the lovely ending for all our listeners?
1: Um, yeah, so Samantha... Is starting to get really concerned. She can't get a hold of her friend, and then suddenly uh, she's and she's like poking around upstairs where she should not be poking around. That's where the the lady that she's supposed to be watching is. Uh, and then suddenly she gets attacked.
0: Uh, Pause. The real horror in this entire movie is when she breaks the vase because anyone who's ever babysitted has had that fear. Yes, <laughs> when she's dancing she knocks over this porcelain vase and ugh, it's traumatizing. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, go back to the real reveal. <laughs> she's
1: just kind of looking around and then suddenly she gets or jumped. She gets dragged into the attic, suddenly she's tied up. She's, you know, there's the couple that hired her, Mr. and Mrs. Ullman, and then there's the old lady she's supposed to be watching, and they're, and and also the the pizza guy, you know the the son of the family, and they're they've got her tied up in the middle of a pentagram, and they're doing a ritual.
0: And again, like the music changes from this kind of classic eighties style to this really Gregorian chant horror demon music, whatever you want to call it. The light is low, things are flashing. You see. This demonic face that keeps flashing on the screen. I had to pause it like four different times to catch it. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know me. I love a good demon. You have no idea what's happening. You know it's this lunar eclipse and this weird creepy family with this really crazy grandma who's like this satanic priestess is doing this ritual. Uh, It's just so chaotic and I love it. I love it.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's... it's Suddenly, she she is in this situation. She doesn't know what to do, but she manages to like wriggle free. You know, after they've like made her drink blood and all sorts of weird crap, she you know manages to you know fight back against most of the family. But then gets overpowered at the last minute, and then uh, it cuts to her in a hospital, and and it turns out she's pregnant with some sort of demon baby is is our assumption based on the
0: antichrist
1: yeah the antichrist or something and then credits roll
0: yeah and again the movie finishes and you're like wait what 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 What?" (laughs) it's it's just so fun it's a really really solid horror movie
1: yeah well and it's it's kind of weird talking about it because a lot of movies if they had that kind of abrupt of a of a change and and that abrupt of a like twist like oh no like she's pregnant with the devil or whatever like a lot of movies that have those kinds of twists don't work but this movie executed that idea flawlessly
0: and why do you think it worked better in this than a few of the other movies where they try and do this
1: i feel like a lot of other movies when they tried to do that they either don't give enough detail, or they give way too much and just beat you over the head with it. Um, It's either, you know, so bare bones that you're like, this doesn't fit with the movie, or it's, hey, we're going to now sit and have, you know, the villain's monologue for 15 minutes, explaining in detail their cult and their evil plan. With this one, it was very subtle. A lot of the clues came from... Little snippets from them, you know, having the radio on in the car where it's talking about the lunar eclipse and how there's lots of worries about like cult activity or, you know, the occult or, you know, that that the lunar eclipse is associated with occult rituals. And there's just lots of like little pieces throughout the movie that gives you enough that when it all comes together at the end, you're like, yeah, that was all there. And you can kind of, in retrospect, go, okay, that piece fit there, that piece fit there, now I have the whole picture.
0: And for me, I think another huge portion of it was, it was simplistic, but scary at the same time. You know, the grandma was very kind of grotesque to look at, and the blood pentacle, and the drinking of the blood, all of that was very gory, very horror-esque, but at the end of the day there wasn't you know black eyes or cloven hooves and demon fire you know it was it was very simple but to the point where it that simplicity scared you still
1: yeah well cuz it made it more grounded in reality exactly because yeah you know, with the exception of the very end action like it's all stuff that could really happen and then the stuff that does happen at the end the you know where it kind of veers into the supernatural once again, it's it's done in a way that feels real. It doesn't, you know. There's not some big crazy demonic face. There's not. I mean, like there there's a demonic face, but it's not like
0: it's anyth- not the focus.
1: Yeah, it's not Valak from the which, Conjuring Two or the which nun. iteration
0: of Valak are you talking about?
1: Uh the Conjuring Two when it turns into a full on demon.
0: Not the cherub riding the snakes yes <laughs> sorry you
1: know it, it it's not anything that flashy and cinematic it it felt very grounded in reality like if there were really a demonic cult doing this kind of thing this is what it would look like It it worked
0: what were some of your favorite scariest parts i've mentioned one being where her friend dies that to me was like the pivot point for the movie and was really very horrific in my mind do you have a few other ones you like Um, for me, it was less
1: any like specific moment and more just the general feeling of of fear that I felt basically from that moment in the movie on, you know, I felt uneasy for the first half of the movie. And then for the second half of the movie, I was scared because I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew what what, whatever was going to happen would be bad. You know, I, I, I remember recoiling as soon as I saw that the pizza guy was the dude who shot her friend. I, it it was little thing after little thing. And and just, you know, seeing Samantha be so vulnerable and being unaware of how vulnerable she is, is what made me feel so scared the whole movie.
0: And in conjunction with that too, I really liked how A lot of the fear for me is you just had no idea what was going on. Is this a home invasion thing? Is it satanic? Is it going to turn out to be paranormal? Is it, you know, the call is coming from inside the house kind of a movie? You know, what is going on? And that confusion for this movie really worked. And I think it worked because the plot was so cohesive. The characters were so real. You know, you felt like you were there with Samantha trying to figure out what the hell is happening. Yeah. So for me, it's a pretty flawless movie. The only like improvement or critique that I could pick out of and this is like me being very nitpicky would be maybe some of the pacing at the beginning of the movie. It was needed and I think it really helped develop Samantha as a character, um but rewatching this movie sometimes is a little bit more difficult because it it has a slower pace in the beginning, is all I'll say.
1: Oh yeah, I mean it's definitely a slow burn movie, but I felt like kind of looking at it as an entire piece. I I don't feel like it was a slow burn in a bad way. I felt like it had all of the little pieces you know earlier on in the film that ended up being important later. So it didn't feel like it was boring or you know unnecessary at any point. You know, it it set up the relationships, it set up the characters it set up you know, the situation and also set up a lot of the, the background details that ended up becoming important relative to this satanic cult.
0: And I would I would definitely agree. I, I guess all I'm saying is to be as nitpicky as possible just mm-hmm. because I did not give it a 10 out of our crowns. Yeah, I just, it, it hampers its rewatchability, I think, a little bit. It's not substantial for me to... To really make a bigger deal out of it than this, because honestly, it's mm. fairly, fairly standard or solid. Excuse me. Honestly, I think it's the best of Ty West's four horror movies that he's kind of known for. Yeah. Um, there's this VHS, which is pretty solid. I really like the first VHS. Yeah, and, and and I mean, he only did part of VHS, and true. The Sacrament I thought was really great. I love mm-hmm. the Sacrament, but not anywhere near as close to being as this level of good.
1: Oh, yeah. I I, I really enjoy The Sacrament, but it's not on the same
0: level. And then he also directed The Innkeepers, which you and I have watched together, and I don't even know if you remember it because it was just atrocious.
1: Yeah, it's... I need to rewatch that movie because everyone is... like, A lot of the internet is very... positive, Positive about this movie? Very, very positive about The Innkeepers. And I don't know, maybe we were just in a weird mood or something because I was
0: bored... I, I was with my ex, so maybe her negativity was affecting our ability to appreciate the movie. Yeah, I'm, I'm, w- I'm definitely
1: <laughs> wanting to rewatch it just to see what it is that I missed the first time because, yeah, I had a hard time with that movie the first time we watched it. So kind, um, And then he kind- also did the oh, uh, oh, what's the other movie? The uh, oh god. It's it's a sequel to that Eli Roth one where everyone has like crazy... Oh, the Cabin, cabin Fever. Cabin Fever. Yeah, he yeah. did Cabin Fever too, but I think he has like disavowed that movie. He's like, yeah, I made it, but let's not talk about that. Let's just forget um, that I made that movie.
0: Which is a good choice on his part. <laughs> well, Cabin Fever, don't get me started on that movie. Yeah, and he didn't make Cabin Fear. he made Cabin Beaver too. I, I know, I just, that whole series is just, I don't know, not my favorite. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's move into our Crowns and Screams. Well, can I tell
1: a fun fact about the movie?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I will never turn a fun fact down.
1: So, uh, part of the, like, promotional release for this movie... Uh, when it you know came out on DVD and Blu-ray, is that it was also available on VHS in a clamshell box? Just because oh, it was such a that know, is
0: so cool.
1: Yeah, they they really wanted to you know nail down the authenticity of that era by making it you know available in that format as well. And I guess the last movie that had come out in VHS had been like four years before. I think it was a History of Violence, and so it. It was the first one in several years to to have that, and it was kind of unheard of. I don't think it sold that many, but you know, it was kind of a fun collector's item. So,
0: It is now my mission in life, though, to find it on VHS.
1: Yeah, that would be awesome. That
0: would be so cool. All right, let's move into Crowns and Screams. Yes. For me, I give it a 7 on the Screams. Um, it's solid, it's good, but again, a lot of the horror is very subtle. Which is not a bad thing, Mm -hmm. but really the the best horror in this movie, the best scares are at that pivot point where the friend dies and then the last 15 minutes of the movie. So that's why I gave it a 7, kind of above average, but not like Hereditary where I was terrified the entire movie. And again, we talked about Hereditary, so, you know. Yeah,
1: I think we good. Like... I, 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 I kept myself from comparing it to Hereditary more, so we're making progress.
0: <laughs> we're getting there. We're not perfect, but we're getting there.
1: Yes. Um, I'm also giving it a 7 for the same reasons.
0: Um, as far as crowns go, it's pretty darn perfect. I'm going to give it a good 9 and not a 10 for the reasons I explained, just because I I don't know. I feel like you should give less amount of 10s out there in the world. And this movie came very close, but just wasn't quite there for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to give it a 9 as well. It it lacked that je ne sais quoi of, of whatever it is that takes a, something to a 10, but it was
0: I've almost never heard flawless. You, I've never heard you use the word je ne sais quoi, and I need that recorded and on loop for me, please. Okay. <laughs> I will
1: send you a looped version of just me saying je ne sais quoi over and over again.
0: But yeah, it it, it was so good. It was so great. But there was a little bit of juge that was missing. And I don't know if I could label that juge right now. I'd have to, like, pray about it or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Man, I just really like this movie. I, I want to see the main actress from this and more stuff. Totally. Basically, the only thing I think I've seen her in otherwise is uh, an Aflac commercial.
0: Oh. Hmm.
1: And it was funny, because uh, I like saw this Aflac commercial, and I was like,
0: is that the girl from House of the Devil? <laughs> that is quite the plot twist for her, from being a human sacrifice and mothering the Antichrist to Aflac. Yeah. I mean... Uh,
1: it looks like she's been in stuff, um, but yeah, it looks like it's mostly been kind of smaller roles. She's gonna be in Doctor Sleep, though, so I am very excited for that movie in general, and that makes me even more excited.
0: All right, should we discuss one of my favorite things to talk about, which is the Satanic Panic?
1: Yeah, I mean we we figured it would be appropriate considering the subject matter of the movie, you know, being largely inspired by the Satanic Panic.
0: I feel like you need to add um, alarms going off anytime we say Satanic Panic! Whatever!
1: (laughs) I'll see what I can do on editing.
0: Perfect, perfect, perfect. All right, Nathaniel, hit us up. Give us some... What is the Satanic Panic? What's going on?
1: So the Satanic Panic was kind of a cultural phenomenon that was mostly through the 1980s that was basically everybody in america being terrified that satanists were going to come and murder them in some sort of cult ritual or eat their m- babies. Yeah, eat their babies, murder their kids. Hydra kids, Hydra wives. <laughs> yeah, I mean it it was basically yeah, satanists are going to come and mess up your whole life. And they might do it in a way that will make you
0: forget all of it. <laughs> It's so crazy. Like, it's so crazy. This is such paranoia at its finest. Yeah, but
1: I mean, I think it's a a great example of kind of how viral fear works. So it really all started kind of around 1980 with a book called Michelle Remembers. Uh, So this was a book by a dude named Lawrence Pazder. I'm assuming I'm saying his name correctly, hopefully. But, anyways, it is a book that was about this girl who was a who was you know seeing a psychiatrist and or a psychologist, one of the two, and basically you know through like hypnotherapy and some other. Uh, things along those lines she uncovered these deep repressed memories that she had been you know tortured and you know abused by this cult over all of these years in her childhood and and you know it was something that she didn't remember but it was messing her up you know in her adulthood you know even though she had no memory of it and so this has, you know, been largely debunked since then. Um, it was, you know, mostly just a sensational book to make lots of money, and you know, it, it sold a gazillion copies because everyone was terrified. But that's kind of what kicked things off, and then shortly after that time, uh, there was a there was some um, abuse of some children at a preschool, and and it was mostly sexual abuse, and because satanism was on everyone's mind a lot of the assumptions that kind of came from that was that oh like this must be you know like ritualistic stuff to abuse these you know small children you know being done by a satanic cult that's that must be the cause for it and so those two things really launched this fear of Satanic ritual abuse into the public sphere.
0: Um, it's really important to remember, too, that really from the 60s all the way through the mid 90s, there were a ton, a ton of occults that were starting to formulate throughout the world. I've got a list of just kind of a massive cult that happened decade by decade. You know, in the 1960s is when we get the Manson family coming out of the woodwork, and if you don't know who the Manson family is. You really need to stop listening to the podcast and go do some research. But then in the 70s, you have the People's Temple, which is the Jonestown Massacre, You know, where people say, drink the Kool-Aid. That came from this. Um, which was terrible... also the
1: inspiration for the movie The Sacrament by Ty West.
0: It's a horrible and tragic story. In the 1980s, you get the Unification Church, uh, which is also called the Moonies. Uh, there's also the Branch Davidians in the 1990s with the Waco raid. Um, and then Heaven's Gate in the nineties, you know, it, it's this like massive cult after cult after cult on top of all of the satanic panic that's going on. And then you have big, big central figures like Aleister Crowley, who I love to death. He was a psychopath. Um, he died in 1947. Um, and he created this religion known as Thelema, which their mantra or motto is do what thou wilt. Like it was a very self driven religion. There are no morals, morals are defined by yourself. Like hedonism. It was, uh, exactly. Uh, hedonism to a T. And that was very, very terrifying for a lot of religions. And a lot of that occult background started to surge in America in the 50s and the 60s. Um, And then you get Anton LaVey, who was the founder of the actual Church of Satan in California. And Anton, again, he's a very charismatic guy. He looks really scary. He did really well in the circus. Um, He traveled ping pong back and forth through a lot of circuses. And so he got to know a lot of celebrities. He got to know a lot of rich and famous people. And he also got to know a lot of the people who are outcasts who needed a home who didn't fit into, you know, white Christian society at the time. And so the church of Satan was founded in the sixties and, and it was kind of this perfect storm, this perfect combination to really mess with America. And there's a ton of kickback from religious institutions on this, a ton of kickback. I mean, my dad tells me stories of his mother making him throw out all of his ACDC vinyls because the church at the time was telling them that if you play it backwards you're going to have satanic chants and you know rituals that are going to come through on the vinyl like it's crazy
1: yeah yeah it, so it immediately caught a lot of media attention uh, and also really got you know, kind of blasted into the stratosphere through uh, a lot of religious groups. You know, there it became a regular part of a lot of uh, sermons or, you know, like, they would have special weekday meetings or whatever, you know, a a special meeting talking about, okay, like, you have to watch out for the Satanists. Here are all the signs. Oh, they're going to be listening to rock or metal music. They're going to be playing with Ouija boards. They're going to be... Interested in the occult, they're going to. Uh, I mean, even so, you know, as far as stuff like uh, playing cards, uh, a lot of times were had a, a big kickback. I know my dad has mentioned that my grandma, you know, even to this day, really doesn't like face cards because they're they're evil.
0: Same with my grandparents. Mm-hmm. Uh
1: And so it was this huge thing, and you know, of course, around this time. Even things like Dungeons & Dragons is becoming popular. And a group was formed called Bad, Bothered About Dungeons & Dragons, that was a parent group to to keep your kids from joining, you know, the occult through playing Dungeons & Dragons, which is ridiculous. <laughs> and and has resulted in some really funny parodies like uh, the Dead Ale Wives Dungeons & Dragons skit. But it's still, you know, just... It it shows how extreme it went. You know, kids are playing a fantasy game. You know, playing as elves and dwarves and stuff, and suddenly, oh, they must be being drawn into the to Satan through this game.
0: But you know, it all reminds me of our Ouija board episode that we had. That this panic that occurred in the United States did happen to a lot of the adults in our lives, and now you you still feel the reverberations from all of this. Oh yeah. You know, Ouija boards are terrifying. Tarot card is evil. Don't look into the occult, or Satan will take you over. And demons can be summoned by doing certain things. Like it's, it blows my mind how sensationalized things became, and it's a real tragedy for those of us who love the occult because it stigmatizes us quite substantially.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and it's it's really interesting to see kind of like how it even spread, you know, it started out with the US, but beca- because it became such a huge cultural phenomenon, you know, suddenly there were started being, you know, claims about Satan or uh, Satanic abuse, you know, popping up all over the globe. Suddenly, you know, there's stuff in Australia and France and wherever, you know, the suddenly the entire world was just riddled with fear about the satanists are going to come they're going to do some ritual to you you're going to be brainwashed you'll you'll forget that it happened but it's going to mess you up and and make you do evil things your whole life thankfully you know probably by about 1987 a lot of this started calming down a lot And, and at least in terms of the media the, the coverage started kind of being a lot more skeptical about a lot of the claims that were being made. And so probably by like the mid-90s, uh, most of the panic had had gone away from the public limelight. I mean, obviously, like we mentioned, there's still reverberations of that today, but a lot of the kind of imminent fear, especially about you know, stuff like Dungeons and & Dragons and about music and about all of that, really got toned down to a much more reasonable level.
0: Yeah, and I mean, obviously it's still out there. Um, The poor Church of Satan, I just can't believe how they handle all of this. Uh, But they got a ton of flack, and if you really look into the dogma and the doctrine of the Church of Satan, it's not anything near this kind of fear and paranoia that was so pervasive. It's dark, it's twisted, but that's only because it's twisting this kind of judeo-christian belief that we believe is so pure and so truthful it's just another way of thinking it's not harming anybody that the actual practitioner um you know there's off branches and crazy people out there of course but that's going to hold true for any religion
1: yeah and i think it's important to make the distinction that there's probably a difference between d- demon worship and then the church of satan which is mostly a it's an
0: atheistic religion, honestly, which is yeah, kind of a yeah. paradox, but also even demon worship, like demon worship can be broken down into just paganism. Like mm-hmm. it's everything has to be taken with a grain of salt. And when you don't do that, we get things like the satanic panic. Yeah. And uh, and it's so interesting to see
1: like how it is still kind of manifesting today. Uh, when I was doing some research on this, I was finding some information that, like, for example, in Salt Lake City, so not too far from us, uh, in 2008, there was a, a therapist named Barbara Snow who uh, was put on probation because she was trying to plant false memories of satanic abuse in her patients. Um, she saw what was, you know had happened before with the satanic panic and was trying to kind of use that to her... Advantage, uh, I guess it. I don't know. It was that's pretty messed up. And I mean, a lot of people still hold on to the belief of satanic panic, uh, in in a way that is you know saying, hey, there's a lot of government cover up of this kind of stuff. You know, there's high ranking uh, government officials that were are you know satanists and and things like that. And so, kind of you know there there it's the uh, confirmation bias where a lack of evidence is is just Evidence uh, for them, you know, the fact that there isn't more evidence of it means that obviously it's just getting covered up by the right people.
0: Well, and confirmation bias is such a huge problem, especially in faith kind of ideologies. Is you know, if you like something and you read about it, of course your brain is going to kind of latch onto it and be attracted to it. And if there's something contradictory to that again, confirmation bias is going to pull you in and make you believe it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. One of the most challenging things to do is look at data, look at a source, and interpret it without any sort of confirmation bias. It's near impossible. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and, and it's, it's really interesting to see how, how there are still things that are you know actively happening today that are almost the same kind of stuff. Uh, for example, there was the uh, PizzaGate conspiracy theory. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. No, enlighten me. Oh, good heaven! Um, I will.
0: I will try and keep my confirmation bias under control.
1: Okay, so <laughs> I, I don't know the details super super intimately, just because the whole thing feels like it's giving me an aneurysm. But basically, it is it was an extreme right wing. Uh, group of conspiracy theorists online who began to believe that many high-ranking Democratic officials uh, were operating a, like, child sex ring through a specific pizza shop in D.C. Sounds about right. (laughs) But it, it reached the point in which one of the conspiracy theorists went into the pizza place armed heavily and like held people hostage demanding to, you know, find out like where the, the back room is where the children are being held. Um, and yeah, you know, resulted in a big showdown with the police. Um, you know, there was no evidence of it, but they were looking at every random, you know, social media post of, of every you know big d- Democratic official. You know, the Clintons, for example, and and looking at it and saying, "Oh, like this typo here isn't a typo; it's it's a, a clue showing you know this. It, it's giving instructions and all that." And they they had it so broken down you know to, to such minutiae that they they really believed it but yeah i mean you see a lot of the same elements that are you know the the belief in in a governmental cover-up and and high-ranking officials being involved uh you see a belief of of you know alleged child abuse you see these you know kind of codes that that go with it these secret clues and it's it's fascinating because it's it's just a, a modern-day resurgence of the same kind of stuff.
0: It's That's insane. I don't even know what to think about that. <laughs> yeah, people, it, people it really is. People are crazy, and, and taboo stuff will always be taboo, and no matter how open of a mind you are to it, that confirmation bias is gonna creep in some way or another, and it's just really hard for humans to stay open and, and logical sometimes. righty. That was a pretty solid episode for us, Nathaniel. Yeah, yeah, I've I've enjoyed this
1: discussion. I think, you know, especially just kind of going forward, the Satanic Panic era is a really interesting uh, topic of, of discussion. I'm really looking forward to uh, the upcoming film, Satanic Panic, which was written by a friend of the show, Grady Hendrix. Woo! And, and you can definitely see, you know, why he would have chosen uh, that topic, you know, looking at a lot of the elements of, say, My Best Friend's Exorcism, kind of reflecting a lot of that mindset of the era. But yeah, so that's going to be a movie, I think, coming out either this year or next year. I don't know, it it comes up a lot, and so I think it's a a really fascinating subject.
0: It's fun, it's spooky, and again, there's a lot of taboo and mystery about it, and horror movies are all about that.
1: Alright, so any uh, final thoughts about the movie, or about satanic panic or anything else
0: just to tell our listeners to get excited nathaniel and i are going to be performing some magic for our anticipation of a future episode
1: yep gonna do a spell uh we're gonna uh, we have lots of cool stuff lined up we're gonna have some real life ghost stories we're gonna have all sorts of cool stuff we have some really cool people lined up as guests we once again I want to uh, mention our, our merchandise that is now available on TeePublic so definitely check that out I'm going to make a few more designs that should be available soon everything's everything's coming up Scream Kings
0: alright friends stay
1: spooky stay spooky
0: need even more Scream Kings
1: here's our obligatory shameless social media plug follow us on Twitter or Instagram
0: at Scream Kings Pod You could also email us at screamkingspodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You can also support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash screamkings. Stay spooky.